Thank you again for another year, another day. We know that this day is not guaranteed. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. As we go through this new series on 1 John, Father, I pray that your spirit speaks to us. This great book of of assurance and, and reflection on what it looks to be one who follows you. Father, may our weakness be revealed so that we look and cling to the strength of your Holy Spirit always, every day. Father, help us to glorify you. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two years. Two years. I can't even begin to to speak on all the things that have occurred over the past two years, and I'm not going to because uh, we'll be here a while. Um, but I'll say in the words of, of, of Kevin DeYoung, uh, if I wasn't a Calvinist, I would say that you know, I'm really lucky to be part of this congregation. Uh, and, and so we know everything happens uh, through the providence of God and and just so thankful to be a part of, of such a collective that the Lord has you know, pressed upon the hearts of so many, the, the fervency of the gospel and, and the, whole, the holiness of God to such a standard, um, and again, a standard that we know that we can't uphold, uh, but we strive to each and every day. Um, so we're going to be looking at, at, at 1 John. We're going to be going through 1 John. I think it's very fitting for um, just where we are at as a congregation. Um, many first-generation believers in the congregation. Um, and, and we see this book. This book is this, this beautiful book of reflection and reflecting upon um, that, that examination that Paul calls us to do, to examine ourselves. Examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. And First John is, is, a, is a go-to for that. Um, we see that the difference between the book, the Gospel of John, uh, the Gospel of John speaks primarily on the divinity, the divinity of Christ, where First John speaks more so on the humanity of Christ and the, the, the hyperstatic union of God-man, the God-man Christ. And so that's what we're going to dig away in in, in this book here. Uh, 1 John is, is tucked away in the back of, of your Bible here. Um, it's this little letter. Again, there's three letters here. Um, 1 John, John the Apostle is the one who wrote this. John uh, was one of the original 12, and he wrote five books. In, in our Bible here, the, the Lord used him to, to pen these five books. Um, again, the gospel, the gospel of John, that, that, that presents the life, death, resurrection of Christ. And then for second and third John, speaks more on like the present, like what is going on like here and now, and teaches us how are we to live as, as Christians in, in today's world. And then uh, have the book of Revelation which is a, a book that, that speaks on, that looks to the future, that shows us the, 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 the imminency of Christ's return, his re- return in glory to, to the earth, and where there will be, everything will be wiped away, and there will be a new heaven and, and new earth. So that's John. He's, the, the, again, the pen to this, uh, this letter inspired by the Holy Spirit for him to, to write this. Um, we know John, he spent a ton of time in Ephesus, and, and, and it's likely that he wrote this book. There's debate about the exact timing of uh, this letter, but most kind of fit it right in somewhere around 80, 85 A.D., uh, so a bit later in his life. And so the church at this time then, this is being 50 years after Christ's ascension, would be composed of second, third generation Christians. Uh, for some Christians, 
and this is depending on what location they were in, there's a time of persecution. Uh, for others, it was perhaps the, the, the thrill. The initial thrill was gone. Um, the, the flame of devotion to Christ was perhaps somewhat flickering uh, due to the persecution, perhaps. But I think a lot primarily due with these false teachers that were entering into the congregation and infiltrating the churches in Asia Minor. Um, some Christians were essentially becoming lax. They were becoming, becoming lax in, in the Christian standard, becoming lax in, in holding the, the, the holiness of God to the standard it, it deserves. So into these circumstances comes this letter, First John. It comes with this letter, and John wrote with at least four purposes. And that's what we're going to really dig into over the next... I'll guess somewhere around four to six months. We're going to be digging into to these four purposes, and I, and I pray that these jump out constantly and that we're able to, to reflect our lives upon these four purposes and, and, and to thrust forward. And so first one is, is the combating against these false teachers. So that's the, the first purpose uh, that John writes this letter. Combating his false teachers that are they're beginning to infiltrate in the church, these, these ravenous wolves that are coming in. So he's exposing the false doctrines, and he's promoting spiritual truth. Well, John was, one thing that, to take note first, right off the, the jump, is that, that John was not afraid. He was not afraid to engage these heresies that they were just popping out everywhere in the first century. He wasn't afraid. And so, therefore, as we go through this letter, we, we ought to reflect on, on where we are at in our culture, where we're at in our society. Are, are we fearful of speaking out? Do we just kind of keep our mouth shut and just whimsically go about our lives in the mix of heresy and, and false teaching that has been uh, infiltrated into the ears of, of, of our loved ones, of our relatives, people that, are, that God has placed around us. So asking ourselves, are, are we whimsically just going about in society and just, or, or, or are we truly holding fast to what we say we believe? That of sola scriptura, right? And the scripture alone. Because holding fast to that means we're also speaking the truth to those that do not know, those that have been led astray. Are we willing to call out these, these heretical teachings? You know, or are you willing to, to tell your Catholic friend or family member, your, your SDA family member, Mormon friend, are you willing to, to sit down with them and, and exhort the truth of the scripture with them? Or do you just resolve in your mind to allow them to continue to sit under damnable heresy? You know, some will say, like, well, I don't want to you know, cause a, a, a argument or or anything of that nature. And so I, I, I push that off as, as loving. I don't want to create anything that can cause a disturbance. But man, if, you're, if your family member or your friend or, or you know, somebody close to you or anybody for that matter is, is, is in a burning building, would you just sit there and watch that building burn with them in it? I hope not. So this is what John is doing. He, he's not afraid. He's calling out these, these false teachings that are, that are infiltrating into the church, infiltrating into the minds of, of, of those he loves. So secondly, second purpose here. You know, John has this, this ethical purpose in, in writing this letter. Specifically, he, he deals with the attitudes towards sin. Attitudes towards sin and, and the necessity for the love of other Christians. So the fellowship, we'll see that quite a bit, fellowship within this letter. The third thing 
And John clearly has a, a pastoral purpose in mind. Uh, his, his, essentially, his pastoral heart is just kind of beating throughout these words that uh, throughout the letter. You can see just his, his just devotion and, and, and love for the church and, and, and wanting the, the health of the church to, to continue to, to, to rise and, and the strength of the Christians in their faith. That was a clear concern of his. His concern for the genuine fellowship among all the believers in the churches of, that he's writing to. We see like his frequent reference you will see throughout is he, he's saying like uh, he refers to the church as his children, as little children, yeah, which reflects again that pastoral tone to the letter. And we see that with Christ himself, and call, constantly calling his disciples children. And so as one, John was probably likely in his 80s. So it's, the age... And in spiritual maturity that comes from walking with Christ for 50 plus years, you know, John could tenderly refer to all the people in the churches, whether they were young or old, as, as children. And so, lastly, the fourth thing that, that we'll look at through this letter is that, that John had this, this personal purpose. For writing, and we see that right there in the fourth verse of chapter one, right? And that's that, so that our joy may be complete, that our joy may be complete. I just, I can't. I go back to this. Is this beautiful letter of assurance? If we struggle with assurance, right, and we'll be fooling ourselves if if we say we we never do or have never have, right? And so this is the, the go-to letter. When we're, we're struggling and combating against assurance of salvation, it's just a great reflection. John lays out, this is what it looks like, somebody who is in the faith. This, looks like, this is what it looks like for somebody who, who the, the Holy Spirit abides in. Nineteen times in this first letter, the word abide is used, if I counted correctly. So this is a huge theme here. Does Christ abide in you? So I'm going to read these first four verses here, and, and as always, just take heed of the infallible, perfect word of God as I read. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So we're probably going to break this into two, uh, two sermons. Uh, because there's just so much to unpack as an um, introduction to this uh, letter. And so these first four verses here, just chapter, it's, it's, constituted, it's, it's, it's the prologue to this letter. And in this verse, the, and you see like the, the beautiful, great majesty is, is combined with just great simplicity. Uh, John begins, he says, that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So notice uh, after verse 1, we see this, if you have an ESV, you, you see this dash in, in the ESV translation, uh, followed by another dash at the end of verse 2. Um, that's the, the ESV translators uh, Indicating here in the Greek, this is a parenthetical. In the verse two is, is a parenthetical. Uh, that verse two, that parenthetical statement is the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So essentially, verse three reverts back to the thought at the end of verse one. It says that which 
we have seen and heard. This is followed by the main verb of this paragraph. The main verb, cling to this here. The main verb in this paragraph, we proclaim also to you. It's the main verb here. We see other descriptive verbs, but this is the main like exhortation, go do this verb. Proclaim also to you. So this proclamation. It's the most important semantic information John is conveying here in these first four verses. So maybe it'll be easier if, if you understand it in this way. John's saying it this way, like he says, we proclaim to you that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen, that which we have looked at, and that which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So that's what we're going to unpack this morning, those, kind of those first three verses there. Um, so when John's saying, he's saying, that which was from the beginning, and the, the forebearer of that is the word of life. The word of life. So although John does not name Jesus until the latter part of verse 3 here, he's saying the word of life is clearly referring to Christ Jesus. It's the word of life. So one of as we see through John's letter, his, his gospel, and even in Revelation, his favorite descriptor of Jesus is, is the word. The word. And John begins his gospel, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. That's, that's this unbeginning beginning. The eternal son, the word, so when John says that Jesus was from the beginning here in 1 John, the question is, which beginning is he talking about? Is it the beginning of Jesus' earthly life? Some think so. We won't get into a big debate on that. Or is it perhaps the beginning of eternity's past? which in reality is no beginning at all. Well, Jesus, his existence did not begin when he was born in Bethlehem. It didn't begin then. Right? Likewise, Jesus, he, did not, he was not a created being. He wasn't created like the, the angels. He wasn't born in heaven. Like some religions believe. R.G. Lee, he, he often described it this way. He says, Jesus was the only man who had a heavenly father, but no heavenly mother, who had an earthly mother, but no heavenly father. I'm sorry, but no earthly father, who was older than his mother and who was as old as his father. Jesus is fully God and thus eternal. You all got that, right? Because I said some heresy there for a second. <laughs> Beware of ravenous wolves. You can call me out anytime. Keep me, keep me in check, please. <clears throat> it seems peculiar that John, you know, for John to tell us that, that the apostles heard, saw, touched, looked at, and handled Jesus. You know, why, why, would, why would John make such a, an odd statement employing all these descriptive verbs here? Well, one answer to this may have to do with this new philosophy that was beginning to take ground in the first century. That's the prime, one of the primary reasons in that false teaching that was infiltrating. We know it today as Gnosticism. So this Gnostic teaching was, it was infiltrating the churches in Asia Minor. And this word, this word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which, which means knowledge. It was a, a combination of, of pagan mysticism and Greek philosophy, you know, founded on two primary principles. The first one is that, that Gnosticism taught the way of salvation was through this secret, superior knowledge granted to the initiated. 
see that a lot in, in religions today. If you're not part of this church that has this certain knowledge, then well, you're out. We see that with Mormonism. We see that with SDA. We see that in several. We see that in hyper-Calvinists. Where it's a true thing. When people, when people come to the understanding of Reformed theology, they, they almost become this wild animal that, that is like just hunting after people and shaking them and being like, how do you not know this? If you don't know this, there's no way you're saved. If you don't know the five solas and, and, and proper soteriology, if you don't know all these things, oh, there's no way. You're going to get through the gates. So they come to this, almost this resolve in their mind that like them and like four other people are going to be in heaven. <laughs> Typically call this cage stage. The reason being is it's like we need to get back in your cage. Relax for a second. It's not the knowledge that saves anyone. It's, it's Christ. Christ alone. Secondly, Gnostics uh, considered all matter to be evil. Matter being like physical matter. But they saw the spirit to be good. Therefore, the the Gnostics taught that that your physical body is evil, but your soul is good. I'm sure you can start thinking how wonky that can become. Some of the churches John is combating in this letter had been infiltrated <coughs> uh, by these, these uh, merging forms of Gnostic teaching. So the first error uh, with, that was a practical error here, uh, teaching Christians this, this wrong way of life, absorbing this error. Christians went on to these two extremes. The first extreme that they fall into is asceticism, where you begin to, to punish your body. So those are the punish your body. And, and that's the question, like, why would anybody do this? Why would they punish their physical body? What's the purpose of that? Well, in their mind, it's, it's to free the spirit. You need to free the spirit, which is good. You need to punish the body, which is bad. So all matter is evil, physical matter, but the spirit is good. It's, I mean... In and of that self, it just doesn't even make sense. So they're saying that I'm going to use my, my, my physical body, which is nothing but evil, which I, mean, I think we can agree with that. We are all depraved. But to use our depraved, evil body as the instrument to release what is good Counterintuitive. You're going to use that which was evil to produce good. It doesn't make sense. If the body's depraved and evil, how is it to release what is good inside? If it can only do evil. The other extreme is licentiousness. This is the common, this is the this is the religion of today. Licentiousness is the main religion people follow today. Especially in America, right? And, and so that, that word means to, to live any way that you want. It's whatever you think, whatever you feel, just do it. That's that belief. Because after all, your body's evil. So it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you do with your body because it's, it's evil. Just do whatever you want. Rules don't apply and nothing applies at all. You can do all the drugs you want. You can, you can have all the, the sex outside of marriage you want. You can do whatever you want. Why? Because your body's evil. It does not matter what you do. That's licentiousness. It's the main religion today. Now think about it. Do we have any Gnostics in our society? That's a rhetorical question. Yes. Most of them don't even know that they're 
licentious Gnostics. They have no clue what religion they're following. First John was a general letter that was sent to, to all the churches in Asia Minor to warn them of these practical dangers of Gnosticism, to call out this heretical teachings. You know, Gnostics also led to these doctrinal errors, as you can presume. Gnostics generated like two specific doctrinal errors concerning the person of Christ. Right, the first one is called docetic error. It's docetic error. And, and I know I'm kind of giving you guys a, a more of a, a lesson on a typical religion. I think it's going to help us thrust forward to why John's writing uh, specifically the things in which he says throughout this letter. And also, too, this stuff is prominent today. You must be prepared to... To, to stand firm and make a defense against these things. <clears throat> All right, so we have this docetic Gnosticism, this docetic error, which comes from the Greek word dokio, which means to seem or to appear, is what it means. So if the body is evil, then God, who is spirit, a spirit being cannot have any contact or have anything to do with a physical body. That was the teaching. So think about like what would such a false belief do to the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ? Clearly infiltrate it, right? You can't have an incarnation if, if a docetic Gnosticism is true. You could not have God becoming man Thus, the, the docetic Gnostics taught that Jesus did not have a literal human body. They didn't have a physical human body. They denied the, the, the actual real humanity of Christ. They denied that he was truly man. They said Jesus was, was from God, but they denied that he was God in human flesh. They said that his spirit was from God, but when Jesus was on earth, that wasn't really Jesus in human form. That was just what he appeared to us to be. He didn't have a physical, literal body like you and I. That's what they taught. So when people saw Jesus, they were seeing something of like a, like a ghost or a phantom. That's what they taught. Like if you were to, to walk over and, and touch Jesus, he, he would have no physical body that is able to be touched. He could not shake his hand because he had no literal hand to shake. He just walked on soft soil. He wouldn't leave a footprint. So Docetic Gnosticism denied the incarnation of Christ. So this is, we understand then why, like, straight out of the gate here, in this letter, John speaks about seeing, hearing, and touching Jesus. Drives right to the point, right off the jump. Doesn't waste any time. So what John is saying, he's saying something like this. He's saying those docetic Gnostics who, who slipped into your church are, are teaching you something uh, that, that is entirely false, entirely untrue. They deny that the incarnation of Jesus and, and what they deny, he's saying, I experienced personally. He's like, I was, I was there. I was there with Jesus during his earthly ministry, I saw him with my own eyes. I heard him speak. I, I, I heard him with my own ears. I touched him with my own hands. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that his body was real. So John's also laying out his apostolic authority here. The second Gnostic error. It's called Serinthian Gnosticism. Serenthus, the person who, out of the supposition of his own mind, taught that Jesus had a, a, a real human body, so he got that right. So the opposite of what docetics teach. But he taught that he was just an ordinary man. Just an ordinary man, uh, not God in human flesh. Ordinary man like you and I. 
That Joseph was his real father, Mary was his real mother, and he had a, a real human body. A real human body thing is true. Just with every false teaching, there's truth, right? Wrapped in this lie. He taught that at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon him, and that was when Jesus became the Christ at that moment. And the Holy Spirit remained with Jesus for, for three, the three years of his ministry. However, when Jesus died on the cross, the Holy Spirit could not be associated with the, the suffering and the death according to Serenthus. So the Spirit departed from him before he died. The Spirit left him. He says that's when Jesus cried out. Cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Serenthian Gnosticism taught that Jesus was born as an ordinary man. The Spirit came upon him for three years, then left him. And he died a mere man, just like you and me. Imagine what such a teaching does to the doctrine of the atonement. A mere man could not atone for the sins of anyone. Think about this, the, the, the eternal wrath, check the eternal wrath of the Father that was poured out upon the Son. In order for him to, to be able to pay that, 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 that price, that penalty for death, for, for Christ to be that substitutionary atonement, you have to be an eternal being. Has to be one that's able to receive the eternal wrath of all who will ever believe upon himself in three hours. Jesus was truly man, truly God. No man, no mere man, no ordinary man is able to do that. That's why John 3:36 tells us that that. That those who believe will have everlasting life, but those who do not obey the Son, the wrath of God remains upon them. That eternal wrath that, that the divine Son was able to take upon himself in three hours, a mere man who will, if a mere man who dies without Christ, will receive that same eternal wrath. For a mere man, you know how long that'll take for that person to receive the eternal wrath that is due to them? The answer's in the question. Eternity. For but mere men. These two Gnostic errors, they lead to two serious doctrinal denials in the church to which John is writing. So again, one, the denial of the incarnation and the denial of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. So that is what he's combating here, right off the jump. The Gnosticism is, is not dead. It's not dead today. It's, it's only really disguised today in, in new garbs. So teaching, the teachings that, that deny the, the incarnation, that deny the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, they're very much alive today. They're very, very much alive today. So let's look again at uh, verse 1. John says, we have heard, we have seen. So who does John intend here? To include the, the use of, of we. He says, we have heard, we have seen. He's referring to himself and the other eyewitnesses of Jesus' earthly ministry, which would include at least the other apostles. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that at least, at 
the minimum 264 people saw Christ post-resurrection. And an innumerable amount during his earthly ministry. But I think this is specifically talking, John's talking about himself and the apostles at the least. He's emphasizing the historic reality of what he is saying and maybe also the, the impact of it all that continues to refine his life. And remember, his salvation, John's salvation and the salvation of all who are in Christ did not end at the moment in which they're saved. It begins there. And it thrusts forward and refines, and, and he who started a good work will bring it to completion. So when we reflect year to year, it's like looking back. I don't know if I'm the only one that ever has done this. I'm assuming not. But it's like year after year, looking back, maybe five years or ten years, or sometimes even a year, sometimes even a week. And you're like, man, was I even saved last week? Right? And it's like, you just see these workings and refinings in our lives. And it's, it's, it's humbling and, and assuring. <clears throat> so we see this, yeah, yeah, probably him reflecting on these refining constantly in, in, in his life and to add this, John uses two, uses two different Greek words here in the first verse for, for seeing, which is interesting. Um, it says, we have seen with our eyes. Horo is the Greek there. It's kind of a general term used for seeing. And he says, which we have looked upon. A different one. I don't know if it's a stylistic form that he uses here, just using a different word, or if he actually has specific intention, but that, that second word, theomai, is also a lot of times translated behold. Right? And we say in scripture, behold. It's, this, it's something to behold, to gaze upon. It may suggest like, seeing with careful attention and examination, implying something unusual that is seen. So seeing Christ is something not of the norm. It's not like seeing another person. Like I've seen my friend yesterday. Seeing Christ, though, something totally, entirely different. So perhaps he's applying emphasis there on that. Finally, John, he stresses that he and the other eyewitnesses had touched Jesus. Touched him with their own hands. This is John's way of stressing the reality of the physical body of Jesus. And maybe, you know, it's pretty certain that there's another jab at the false Gnostic teaching that is infiltrated into the church. It's also John's way of stressing, again, his authority as an eyewitness apostle of Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And think back, like, thinking back, you know, seven days after Christ's resurrection. In the upper room, at night, Jesus' disciples are, are, are all gathered there. And suddenly Jesus appears. He appears in their midst. And what does Jesus do and say? He, he, showed, he showed them his hands. He, he showed them his size, his feet. He told them to, 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 to touch him and see. Luke chapter 24, verse 39. So maybe John, I'm, I'm, I'm making an assumption here, but is thinking back to that night, reflecting on that night. Now, 50, 60 years earlier, man, it's just as vivid as it was the day it happened. He was there in that upper room when Jesus appeared. So John saw him. He hugged him. He rejoiced with him. He talked with him. So we, we, we touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the word of resurrection life. 
John calls Jesus the Word. He does so in, again, in his, his Gospel, the first verse. Again, in Revelation 19, 13, um, in John's Gospel, Jesus, he refers to himself as the life. In John eleven twenty five. In the context of, of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, this God-man who has control over life and death, it just is the word of life because he gives life. Gives life, takes it away. He alone, he alone can save us from our sins. And forgive us of our trespasses and, and grant us everlasting life. He and He alone. All other issues that John speaks of in this letter hinge on that crucial truth. God has become man in the person of Jesus Christ. The incarnation of Christ. The fact is, the, the, the impregnable fortress from which John will defend the church against those false teachings who deny that, that, that Jesus has come in the flesh. She says in, in the end here of his letter, Christ Jesus has come in the flesh. He, he bookends his letter. Verse 2, John makes... In this extended parathetical comment about the word of life. He says the word was made manifest. The word here, made manifest means that it made to be visible, made to be seen, and made to be understood. John was uh, with the word of life. Three years. Question is like how when you're speaking of this, how, how was the word of life made visible and understandable? So when the, the phrase is taken to refer to Christ, this occurred in history at the incarnation and throughout those three years, throughout those that earthly ministry. You know, if we understand John to can refer to the, the spiritual life that is, is Jesus, that's possessed by Jesus, and imparted by him to others, then the meaning is that this spiritual life became known, became understandable, became available. When Jesus appeared on earth, you know, God revealed his son to the world. You may think, well, what about the Old Testament saints? Do they not... Uh, before, the, the, before Jesus' incarnation. It's the same. They're saved through faith. The knowledge given to them that their Messiah will come. So their faith was that their Messiah will come. This was made known to them through the prophets. And our great prophet comes, Christ. Reveals himself to to the world. Do the same. The same for us. Today, as the Old Testament saints, it's faith. Faith in Christ. Old Testament is faith that he will come. For us, it's faith that he did come. And he did do exactly what he said he did. As one of the apostles, John, he, he testifies to the reality and the truth of Jesus and his gospel message of salvation and eternal life. And he, he makes three statements here in verse 2. He says, we have seen it. What have we seen? The word of life, Jesus, and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. So John does not use, again, the name Jesus until verse 3 but describe Jesus with, with two further statements in verse 2. He says, was with the Father. He, Jesus, the word of life, was with the Father and was made 
manifest to us. And that little phrase, a little phrase, with the Father. With the Father. It's the same phrase John uses in, in, in his gospel, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. <laughs> Get that little preposition, with. So important. A little preposition, with. In the Greek text in John 1.1, 1, 1, conveys that the idea that, that he, was being, he was face-to-face, the face idea of being face-to-face with someone. Jesus face-to-face with the Father. John is emphasizing two things by that phrase there in John 1, 1, and here in our text this morning. First, he is equating Jesus with God in terms of deity, truly God. As Luther said, where the Son of God is, there Christ is. Where Christ is, there the Father is. Second, he's not... He's not combining them in, in, into one person, but is emphasizing that though there is one divine nature, God and Jesus are distinctive divine persons. You know, to deny the distinct personhoods of the, the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is to fall into this doctrinal error called modalism. A lot of high-profile, quote-unquote, preachers preach and follow the heretical view of modalism, including T.D. Jakes, Stephen Furtick, Oneness Pentecostals. It's a teaching which teaches that God changes forms, changes forms in, in the three different ways. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He morphs between the three. That is a heresy because it denies the three distinct persons of the Trinity. One in the Godhead, three distinct persons. You see it upon Christ's baptism. It's plain and simple there. You have Christ, you have the Holy Spirit descending upon him, and you have the Father who says, This is my Son, whom I am well pleased. One of many, many places we can defend the Trinity. <clears throat> so the final statement in verse 2 is a repetition of the, the beginning statement in the verse, made manifest to us. John is emphasizing the fact of the incarnation, which is how Jesus and his salvation has been made known to us. It's been made known to to all the people who ever believe so they can understand what eternal life is, understand their, their need for eternal life, understand their depravity and how they cannot gain eternal life by their own accord. So every discourse taught by Jesus, every miracle performed by Jesus, every act of grace, every tender touch, every word of wisdom formed a part of God's gracious manifestation of Christ to us in words and in actions that we can all understand. The gospel is so simple. That's why he says to, to, to be like a child. Because sometimes we, we like do these, these mental gymnastics and want things to be we want them to be complicated. That's not. He made it so simple that a child could understand. The need for salvation and what Christ has done to atone for the salvation of those who believe. John's shorthand reporting in, in verses 1 and 2 is his way of saying to his readers and, and to us that, that behind every one of these tangible statements are three plus years of, of personal experience with the God of this universe, Christ. 
He's like, I am an eyewitness. I, I listened to him. I gazed upon him. I, I, I touched him. And I testify to the reality of Christ. Through him, I have found eternal life. Through him and him alone. What John is saying is, I've been preaching this life now for more than 50 years, he's saying. And in his letter, he's like, I'm preaching this good news of Jesus to you also. But as John himself heard or overheard, however you want to put it, Jesus praying to the Father in the garden, Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John now re-expresses that truth the truth of that prayer to us today. John is now testifying and proclaiming that Jesus brings forgiveness of sins and he brings eternal life only through him. Eternal life is not just life in terms of length of life. The Greek term that's used for eternal life actually means quality of life as well. A quality of life. It's not just that you'll live eternally when you die. No. But right now you have eternal life if you are a Christian. Right now. You're just on the timeline of eternity. Today. Because life dwells within you. The word of life dwells within you. The eternal word of life dwells within you. Only, only in Jesus is this solution to the problem of how sinful people can be, how sinful people are, and how sinful people can never know God and be rightly related to him in and of themselves. It's impossible. That vast chasm between God's holiness and, and my sinfulness is bridged by the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the exaltation of Christ. John, no doubt, preached numerous sermons, countless sermons, but he is really only preaching one sermon. One sermon alone, salvation and eternal life through Christ. And this is John's proclamation. This ought to be our proclamation. Not only the proclamation that we, we speak and preach to others, but the proclamation that we live our life by. So also, we, we see these the certain key words that characterizes the writings of the New Testament authors. It's really cool. For Paul, it's, it's faith. It's the theme of his writing. Faith, faith, faith. You're saved by grace. You're saved through faith. Or through grace, by faith. You're saved by grace, through faith. Faith. James, it's works. Faith without works is dead. Peter is hope. Be prepared to defend the hope that is within you. For John, it's life. It's life. The way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through Christ. <clears throat> I know I just said that James preaches on works, but James, in, 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 the, in his the fourth chapter, says this profound question, and this is what I want us to really reflect upon this morning, especially as we prepare to, to partake in communion. He asks this question in, in the fourth chapter, verse 14, I believe. Um, he asks this, this question, what is life? What is life? Now, you may never face a more challenging question in your life than what is life? What is life? 
You might be like, well, life is all, I, I heard this message preached from this, this preacher one Sunday, and, and I got all stirred up, and I made a confession, and, and I was saved. And that's it. We even go about your life. Nothing has changed. Look the same as the world. Well, that's great. Like, what is your life? What is your life? Well, I made a confession. I did all this. What is your life? Listen, 1.3 billion Catholics made a confession last week. 1.3 billion Catholics will make a confession this week. Confession never saved anyone. What is your life? Truly reflecting on that, what is our life? Think about it. Like, here's what we'll do. <clears throat> I'll give us like a minute to think about this question. And then we'll go around the room and have us individually stand up and answer this question. It'll take a little while. I'm going to ask this question. Does the word of life, Jesus, live in you? And if it is yes, how do you know? I'm going to give us a minute to think about that, and we'll start with Wyatt. I'm just kidding. I wouldn't have us do that. <laughs> I wouldn't put anybody on the spot like that. Nor will I ever, so don't be afraid to come next week. <laughs> but here's the start reality. If you have, if, when you hear me saying that, if you've got a pit in your stomach, and you're like, oh, no, and truly reflect on this. I know that it was comical to some degree, right? but this should bring it back to, to, to truly reflecting on our lives. I know one of the greatest fears of people is public speaking, right? So that pit maybe because of that. I mean, look beyond that. Was that nervousness, that pit in your stomach due to, I have no clue what to say. I don't know if the word of life lives in me. I have no clue. this before that and if you're, you're, you're traveling up a mountain with a hundred pound pack on your back somewhere along that path somebody removes that hundred pound pack and you get to the top and the person at the top's like where'd your pack go and you're like I, don't know, I didn't even know it was gone you will know if the weight of sin is lifted from your shoulders So I ask you another question. Is your life hidden with Christ? Does he have all your thoughts captive? Does he have your actions captive? Does he have your, your breath, your being, your, your walk? Your, you wake up thinking about him. Do you go to bed thinking about him? Do you bear the marks of Christ? The answer is no. Cry out to him. If you've come into the, the understanding of, and I'm just clawing through this world day in and day out, moving by instinct. And the Lord has bring you to this point. You truly understand that I cannot do this on my own. I have fallen short of your glorious standard. I cannot gain the salvation I'm looking for. I cannot find the, the peace and the joy that I'm searching for.
And I'm not talking about a prosperity, peace, and joy where all your wildest dreams come true and, and everything's just perfect. I'm talking about the peace and the joy, knowing that your life is hidden in Christ. That he has gone to prepare a place for you. He's going to return and he's going to bring all his people unto himself. That assurance of knowing. That no matter how much I fail and I fall, I continue to strive to, to, to be in the likeness of Christ, but I keep falling. Knowing he's going to be picking us up. Keeping us on the path. Knowing that it's not by our own strength knowing it is only because of the possession of Christ in our lives. That is it. The pearl of great price, the treasure that is hidden in a field that you would gladly give up everything, everything in your life to obtain him. It's your life hidden with Christ. I want us to reflect on on that question, the, the, the question that I asked about just the word of life, Christ live in you. It's easy to just say yes. But examining yourself, examining yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Does my life reflect what the scriptures say? It's a life of a contrite heart. A life that reflects the character of God in that you love the things that God loves, hate the things that he hates. You strive to be in likeness of him. So have those on our hearts as we partake in communion. Um, if this is the first time that, that you hear or a guest, um, we partake in communion collectively, but individually in the sense of um, the elements of the, the bread and juice. You can do so together as a family or individually if you're here individually. Um, and I say that to say individually and collectively with Christ um, in, in partaking in that. But you can always reflecting. Do I have a contrite heart? I seek holiness? Do I partake in the communion and go about my day-to-day -day life not giving a thought to what I'm doing and reflecting to the holiness of God? Also, I'm going to throw another one out there that we haven't talked about in a while. Um, we have two ordinances that the Lord has put in place. And we have the Lord's Supper and we have the ordinance of baptism. Right? Neither are salvific. Right? They're saved uh, solely by the, the turning of the heart by the Holy Spirit through the atoning work of Christ. These are commands and ordinances given. So if week in and week out, if we partake in communion, there's not really a specific order that we have to hold to, but I want you to reflect on what I'm about to say. And you have never been baptized. I would ask the question of why. Right. Why would I regard one ordinance above the other? Um, and so if I'm comfortable being in obedience to one ordinance, why am I not in another? Um, and if you have questions on that, and ask myself, pass her on, and we'll always sit down and talk about baptism. We actually require that we sit down and talk about baptism for those that want to be baptized. So, and let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, <clears throat> we thank you for your son Jesus, the word of life, the giver of life, the breath that is in our lungs, 
and the giver of eternal life. The one who paid for the sins of all who believe in him, all his people. The life that he breathes in, the new life, the changed heart, the eternal life. Let us hold fast always to your son Jesus. And, and if our eyes ever turn and our, our thoughts and our actions, Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts and that our hearts don't grow hard to the conviction, but that we pivot instantly and run towards and cling to your son Jesus. Father, I pray over the elements of this Lord's Supper that you bless the the bread and the juice, that you set it aside as a holy use, and that we partake in it in a holy manner. We pray all this in Christ's name.